Hi, and welcome to I Am Helen Keller's Daughter podcast. My name is Laura Newman, and I want to share my story about my mom's deafness, blindness, dependency on prescription medication, her schizophrenia and bipolar, and the result of my chronic trauma throughout my childhood and adulthood. I'm currently an unexplored speaker so eager to share my story of resilience with anyone who wants to listen and who would find meaning and learn from my life. My vision is to help listeners discover what it feels and looks like to live life without sight, hearing, connection, and love. The unknown community of deaf and blindness, children of deaf adults, and the association of cultural awareness that my parents were without and subsequently hurt two generations. I will share all of my pain and everything I've learned. I provide real life accounts in my healing. Thanks for listening. Let's start. Welcome back, everybody, to my podcast. I am so excited to be back here again and sharing my life with everybody. So we, I was talking about my church the last time in my podcast, and so I kind of wanted to just go back and circle around and talk about what the church is like when you're living in the deaf culture. And so when you're in a church that is predominantly deaf, there is so many different singing voices and sounds and signs that are going on. And it's this graceful, beautiful picture of people that are having their hands up and they're using words with their hands to sing songs, or they might just have their hands up in the sky. Or you might have people that are singing and using their own voice to explain, or not explain, but to just, you know, signify that they want to sing along and participate regardless of whether or not their singing is on beat or not. And so this deaf church that we grew up in is where I met a lot of other CODAs. And so those CODAs were um, lifelong friends. We're not as close as we used to be, but there was um, two girls that were just absolutely phenomenal. We grew up with them and we would um, spend the night by their, their house all the time. I think we wanted to live there, really. They were just so much fun to be with. Um, I don't know if they're going to listen to this podcast, but one of them was like more of a troublemaker than the other. And so we would hang out with her and then we would hang out with the other one that was just like big flute player, um, followed all the rules, just a very like straight A, follow the rules kind of girl. And so we would hang out with her a lot and um, (laughs) she kept us out of trouble while the other one did it. And so, but it was beautiful because her mom was deaf too. And so it was just this, it's like you were hanging out with other deaf people and you're hanging out with other deaf um, families where their children were hearing. And so we were able to grow this community together where we really understood each other. And of course, all the dynamics at their house, at these two girls' house were the same as ours. You know, the, the way that we called each other, the way that we talked to each other, the way we spoke to each other, um, just the, I didn't see, I can't remember if they had any of those lights, um, those little light notifications of blinking lights for the door or the, the phone or anything like that, but they definitely had a TTY and they definitely knew my parents very well and all of the other members of the church. And so it was a beautiful place to gather and have people that were similar and all in one place. Um, the, the signing was the primary, um, language that was used in the church, although there was children like me and my two friends that could speak and hear. Um, to both pastors were very good in sign language, um, but they both were hearing. And so when we would break off into small groups, our youth pastor was um, hearing. And so we would work with her and then we'd go back to the regular service. And so I would say that was probably the best time of my life that I felt connected to the deaf community because there's always a, there was a whole room full of them. And so we were always hanging out, having banquets, 
Um, there was always parties, Christmas parties and Halloween parties. And I just missed those days because we really hung out um, as a unit. And then it was also a good way for us to learn how there were other children like us who were having deaf parents and what it was like and some of the challenges that they were facing. And then, of course, we were all in the same community that was, you know, worshiping God. Now, when I was young, I I didn't really have any idea of who God was and where he was in my life. So I didn't really pay attention. I was kind of just the like the adolescent that was kind of getting away with things, sneaking the grape juice when nobody was looking. You know how they do communion? They always had grape juice in the fridge. And so I'd go in there and I would just drink as much as I could and then come back. I'd be like, oh, excuse me, I have to go use the bathroom, drink the grape juice, come back and be like, oh, I feel much better now. And so I did start smoking at a young age too. And so we would sometimes go behind the church and smoke cigarettes. And to this day, I feel like that's one of the worst things you could do is like to say you're going to the bathroom and then go smoke a cigarette. But that's what I did. And so, yeah, I should have been smoking when I was young, but I got introduced to cigarettes. I think I was 13 when I started smoking. So not good, not good. I obviously don't smoke anymore, but um, so the, the deaf church has a big significance role in, in my life and in my parents' life. I did return back to the church when I was about 33 with my dad. And I will say that I could tell that I was able to understand the context and the words being delivered in the deaf church better than any other church I've been to. Not because the other churches were bad churches, but because... <coughs> Excuse me, but because that church was able to use my first language and I felt when I left like I had not had some kind of sermon in in such manner in such a long time. And I remember I told myself I miss being around this and I wish that I could understand the the same way when I listen to like um, an English church because it's very different. It's hard to describe, but it's like it's like painting a picture and being able to see every part of the picture and having somebody explain it to you before moving on to the next picture. And so sometimes when you're just talking, you know, you're just explaining one part of the picture. But in the deaf community, I feel like they're so thorough that they give you a very clear understanding of everything before they move on to the next. And I've been used to that my entire life, that now when I'm in the, the hearing community, it's so fast and it's so rapid. I'm trying to wrap my mind around everything that they're saying, and it's just not the same. So the deaf community, like I said, um, very strong um, as, as, as far as like my family and the their friends and their friends' friends, very strong in the, the deaf church. But we stopped going to the, the deaf church probably around the time that my, my mom started getting really heavily addicted to her prescriptions. And so around that time, my mom um, had started isolating herself and locking herself in the bathroom. And when I say locking, she just would lock the door that so nobody would come in, not because she was worried that somebody would walk in on her while she was using the bathroom, but more worried about somebody walking in on her and seeing what she was doing in there. And what she was doing in there, you know, we found out later on was she was recounting her pills and probably becoming somewhat compulsive over how many pills she had left and how many she was going to take and what she could take extra and then how she was going to be able to get extra to fill in those spots and those pills that she was taking. And she started becoming very, very, um, very centered on those prescription pills. And she started to really shift away from being a parent and being a part of the church and really being a wife. And so, um, I'm going to kind of just pour into a part of what it was like when my mom started her addiction because it really did affect us. Um, I want to say that is probably where 
the like the emotional neglect and abuse start started for us. Although my mom, I bet you if she would be able to turn around right now and say, if I would have known this is the way it was going to be, I would have never done that. I fully trust that she would have done that. But she just had no idea how to help herself and really just parenting in a world that was different than hers and probably hard because she didn't have children that were just like her. And so I'm going to start sharing a little bit about what it was like to have a mom that started becoming um, addicted to prescriptions because it really significantly affected me per se. And I'm not going to speak for my siblings, but it did, it did affect me a lot. And so there's going to be some trauma that's going to be shared in this part. And so I do want to prepare your hearts and your minds because it's going to go into detail about some things that were really hard. And so if you've suffered trauma, that's going to be similar to me. I hope that you can relate and you find some healing in that be through the relation of being able to understand my story because you've done it and you've lived through it yourself. Or maybe you've never even heard of these kind of things or only read about them or studied them and never really understood what it was like. And so I prepare your minds and hearts. And so I'm going to talk about how my mom really started to separate herself from us. And so she wanted nothing to do with us whatsoever. Um, She no longer wanted to hang out with us, do our hair, sit in the same room with us. And so she wanted, she started making these rules that we were not allowed to sit in the same room with her or even be in the same room with my dad. She had become very jealous of our relationship with my father. And I think it was because she felt very ashamed of what was going on with her and she was worried about losing my dad. And so in the middle of her shame and her addiction and her coping and her depression, she was worried about losing my father. And I think she thought by separating us, she could keep him for herself. And that definitely wasn't what was happening. And because she locked herself in the bathroom so long, she didn't realize that all of her hours spent on taking pills and recounting pills and sitting in there and finding ways to um, get refills before they were supposed to be refilled. Uh, She had wasted years, literally years of her life in the bathroom and had um, lost her relationship with all of her children and her husband. Now, my parents are still married. My dad never left her. And so they're still together. But the relationship, I mean, think about the communication, the growth, um, those milestones of the children that you celebrate, you know, uh, elementary, middle school, high school, college, and none of those things. She was completely absent from all of our lives. And she started to make us all feel very um, guilty, especially me. I started to feel very guilty as if I was always doing things wrong because these rules were really absurd. Um, We weren't allowed to sit on any of the furniture. And if we were going to sit on the floor, we had to have some kind of cloth down. Um, We weren't allowed to sit in the same room as them whatsoever. And so we had to... um, We had to never really talk to our parents. And so we'd come home from school and we would be separated in a room and then we would have dinner and then we'd be back in the room where we'd watch TV and we would go to bed. And so day by day by day by day, when my mom wasn't in the bathroom, she was in the other room. And so we started to have no communication with our parents whatsoever. We weren't talking to them. We weren't sharing them with them what was going on in school. Nobody did our homework with us. And so we really relied on each other. And so we would do things where we'd sit on like this office chair where my mom's TTY was and she would see us on there. And she was somewhat fearful of being disciplined, like disciplining us by saying, okay, you can't sit on that chair. What she would do is she'd like turn around, tell my dad, 
you know, secretly, she did this thing. It was really interesting. She'd be like, I need you to come in here where the kids can't see and I need to tell you what's going on. And then my dad would come out after the conversation. We started to catch on that it was something that we were doing wrong. But she, he would come out and say, well, your mom said you can't sit on that office chair, so stop sitting on the office chair. And we were like, well, we don't want to sit on the floor. It hurts our butt. And he's like, that's what your moms want, you know. Or we weren't allowed to use the bathroom on the first floor. We were only allowed to use the bathroom in the basement. And sometimes we were like, we don't want to go all the way downstairs to use the bathroom. It's cold. It literally was cold. We want to use the bathroom on the first floor. And so we would try to go in there and we would try to be as perfect as we could. We would make sure there was no dust, that the tissue stood the same way, that we flushed the toilet. We wouldn't wash our hands in there because we wouldn't want her to know that we were in there. But for whatever reason, one thing would be out of place. It would be like a toilet paper roll that was not perfectly aligned with the tile. And she would know that we were in there. And so she would tell my dad when he came home from work and we would get grounded and so she um, she started making these rules about eating and we weren't allowed to eat. And that was really hard for us because we were growing children. We were definitely hungry all the time. We didn't have the freedom to just, you know, open the fridge. We weren't even allowed to touch our fridge. And so we weren't allowed to go in there to grab water or to grab a snack. We weren't allowed to grab snacks, period. And it just felt like we were um, kind of like on a lockdown. You know, the best way to explain it is it's just we weren't, we had no freedom, no choice over ourselves. We couldn't do anything. There was very, there was all rules and no compassion and no love. And behind the, the rules, there was no explanation. Like when we would say, well, why can't we sit in the room with you guys to watch TV? There was no explanation. It was just like, go or you're grounded. And then you're like, well, of course they don't want to be grounded. So you would leave. And so... It was it was interesting. I think I started to develop at that point probably the roots, the seeds that started to develop the roots because, of course, you have to plant something for the root to grow. I believe at that time is when I started to doubt myself and I started to think that I was incapable of making good decisions and that I was always making mistakes because no matter what I did, I would always get in trouble for something. I was always doing something wrong. I was always not doing anything good enough. And it was... It was even to the point where we were not even allowed to fix our own plate at dinner time because we just couldn't do it right. We would get a little bit of food on the counter and they would, my mom would be pissed and we, she'd be mean to us and we would get grounded. And it was just so restricting. You just had to really walk on eggshells to make sure that you didn't do anything wrong because you would find out that there was another thing that you were doing wrong. And so um, it was hard for us because she almost threatened to uh, put a lock on the fridge because we we were always stealing food. And so I felt like that it, it was guilt. It was a lot of guilt. And I felt like I was just a bad person. When she said the padlock was going to go on the fridge, I wasn't worried and thinking that, oh, my mom's so neglectful and her addiction is really changing who she was. I thought about myself as a person that was making such a bad choice and making so many problems for my mom that I led her to lock the you know the the refrigerator and that I was causing these things and I knew that those things were right but I didn't understand that that was not a normal response to somebody that was hungry I just thought that I was just a really bad person and so of course I didn't share anybody you know share with anybody my feelings cuz I just didn't know how to I didn't realize what was healthy and what wasn't healthy I didn't even have the right words to start telling people my feelings I just kept on going with the flow hoping that there was some way to connect with my mom and so I'd started to skip school significantly in the 6th grade and 
a part of the reason why I started skipping school is because I wanted to be with my mom. I wanted to see her outside of the bathroom. I wanted to see her and see what she did all day. I wanted to see her doing the things that she loved. She loved to feed the cats. The cats were like her joy. And I wanted to be with her. I would literally follow her around, even though she hated it. And then sometimes when she couldn't see when, see me, when her eyes got really bad, I would follow her around and she wouldn't even know that I was there. And so I would I would follow her to, you know, feed the cats that were upstairs in their room locked. Um, that was another rule. My mom didn't like me hanging out with the cats. I don't know what it was, if it was like a jealousy, a worry of losing love, but she would lock the cats in the bedroom. And so I would, I wasn't able to see them until she opened the door. So I'll, um, I did share at a speaking event. There was a one time where I kind of snuck in, I snuck into my parents' closet and she would, you know, she'd feed them and I would wait for her to leave. And then I would pet the cats and love the cats. And so I started to learn how to be sneaky. I learned how to sneak around. I learned how to be, um, to lie. I learned how to figure out ways to be closer to my mom, but that had, it had to be like covert. And so I was, um, I was trying to figure out why my mom didn't want to love me and I didn't understand what she was doing. And I did I wanted to know who she was, like, who was my mom? Because I, I lost her. And so she, start, you know, she would go to the deaf and blind center and she would have these doctor's appointments. And, you know, my parents, you know, they started getting mad at me because I was skipping school all the time. But at the same time, when I was skipping school, I had started to develop some anxiety and I didn't know what it was until I started my um, undergrad at UWM. And then I didn't really understand it, it fully until I was in my master's program with Platteville. And so what I would do was I, I had anxiety. I had very, very high levels of, of anxiety because of the rules that I'll probably share a little bit more on my next podcast of, um, of not having the freedom to do what I wanted. And I was worried that the school was going to be the same way that our home was, where there was all of these rules and that I would get in trouble constantly. And so my anxiety, I thought, was what I called a bathroom problem. And so the bathroom problem was I needed to go to use the bathroom every hour on the hour. And I wanted my teachers to let me go use the bathroom. And so if my teachers wouldn't let me use the bathroom, I would become afraid and I started skipping school. So I started skipping school to hang out with my mom, but I also started skipping school because I was afraid to face the teacher. I was afraid that I was going to be punished for asking to use the bathroom because at home I would ask to hang out with my parents. My mom would get mad and say, don't ask us anymore, or I would get grounded. And so I didn't have an, I didn't know how to cope with it. And so School brought me a lot of anxiety. I even started walking to school on my own instead of taking the school bus because I was afraid of the rules and the treatment on the bus. I thought that people were going to be mean to me. And I felt that if I just walked by myself, I could just be happy and not have to follow or play by anybody's rules. And so in, okay, so the anxiety um, it started to become a problem for my teachers. They definitely were annoyed by me. They had no idea what was going on with me. And so the principal got brought in and my parents were like, well, she's just seeking, you know, attention. Um, she wants us to write these notes. We did it for her. And they would write a note to my teacher saying, Laura has to use the bathroom. Please let her go. And the, the principal was like, well, she's going to need some kind of like medical excuse if she's going to keep on using the bathroom because she's usually, she's using the bathroom once every hour every day. And so I literally left every classroom to go use the bathroom. And I remember I would time it 
I would look at the clock and I would start getting really nervous and I would be so scared to ask the teacher if I could use the bathroom and my stomach would hurt. I would be sweating. I didn't focus in, I didn't focus on class. I focused on whether or not I could leave and I would ask the teacher and the teacher's response usually was annoyance and then I would feel really guilty and then I would say, okay, can I go? And then I would go and I would go to the bathroom and I wouldn't even use the bathroom. I would just stand in there, look at my hair, and kind of talk to the other girls that were in there. And then I would return back to class feeling relieved. And I would do that every hour on the hour. Well, after the principal had said everything to my parents, um, I no longer was allowed to use the bathroom anymore. And so I started skipping school pretty heavily in the sixth grade. Seventh grade was pretty bad. And then I flunked the seventh grade, not because I was a terrible student, but because I missed so much school. And so they held me back my seventh year, and then I flunked the seventh grade again, and that was because I wasn't going to school at all. And so by the time I flunked the seventh grade twice, I had developed such a high level of anxiety that I no longer could even bring myself to school anymore. And so on the surface, it looked like I was just being uh, maybe an annoying you know, young adolescent that was going into her teenager years and just didn't want to go to school because I hated it which is not true because if anybody knew me now, I've got my master's and I love school, academic at the heart. Plus I teach at a, at a, at a university, but um, I just, just, I just couldn't handle it. And nobody was really asking me what was going on with me. And because of that language barrier and because nobody's all sat down with my parents and said, Hey, you know, we need to talk to you about your daughter. We're a little concerned. Does she not like school? Is she behind? She doesn't, her assignments are not very good. The teachers are complaining. Nobody did anything. And I don't think it's because they just were neglectful. I think they just didn't want to take the time to find an interpreter. And so this is a reoccurring theme of of a language barrier where there's this language that needs to be translated to help the people like myself and to improve my life and get me the help that I need. And so nobody wants to take the time to get an interpreter or to write out. And it was just me constantly slipping through the cracks. And so when I was skipping school, my dad and my mom would get pretty pissed at me. Like I said, my mom was like kind of, you know, she would not come directly and tell me what was going on. She would just tell my dad and my dad would ground me. So as I was skipping school because of my anxiety and me being afraid of being controlled and told what to do and being a bad child, I was getting grounded. And these I was getting grounded so much that my groundment was like literally two years. My dad, he was pretty harsh. I had a, a, I was grounded for two years and there was a calendar and he would put an X on every day that I fulfilled my grommet and my grommet was going to bed at 7 PM, which meant that after dinner, about an hour after dinner, I would have to go to my room, no TV. I could read books, no TV, no friends, no nothing. And so I just was constantly isolated I wasn't going to school. I was getting in trouble for not going to school. Um, Nobody was home during the day because my siblings were gone. My mom was there, but she wanted nothing to do with me. I just kind of covertly followed her around. And then when it came to dinner time and spending time with the family, I was already separated from everybody. And it was really hard for me. So I, 
I was very sad. I'd, I'd lost my relationship with my mom and I didn't understand what was going on. I became very isolated from my siblings because I was grounded. And then I was grounded because of the way I felt about school. And so there were so many dynamics going on that I just felt shame and embarrassment. I also just felt like I was I was bad. The more I got punished, the more I felt like I couldn't trust myself and I just wasn't doing anything right. And so it really did change my life. And it started the the pavement for me to, or paved the way for me to start relying on other people, other people that were my age, which was, you know, 12, 13, 14, and some older people to um, kind of gap in those areas where I, I felt lonely and I wanted love. And of course, I want love, but the first place I was looking for it was with a guy and it was the wrong place. And it wasn't like I was out there trying to, you know, find a boyfriend because I wanted a boyfriend and I was promiscuous or I was looking for affection from a man. I just wanted love. And, and because I didn't see that there was any wrong with dating or all of the things that come with dating and what it's like to meet a boy and somebody that's much older and how to be safe. I was just so naive and thinking that somebody could fulfill me. And I thought it was a boy. And of course, it was, you know, he was very popular and everybody liked him. And so I was like, even better. He must be a really great guy. And so I started chasing after him. And I started running away. And we would hang out at this place called your mama's house. And so just to recap, I started running away from home because I was trying to avoid all the stuff that was going on at home. And then I found a boy, which really drove me to start running away even more. And I would hang out at this place that was very illegal. It was called your mama's house. It probably lasted four months because they literally put paper on the windows so nobody would know that we're smoking weed and doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing. And so we were in there smoking weed and we were in there having a good time. There was live DJs. It was, you know, a dance party. It was all kinds of stuff. And so I loved it. I've always loved to dance. Um, I'll get into that a little later. And so it was just like, it was, it was like a vacation. I could do what I want. I was with much older people. that are a lot more mature than me. I could, you know, kind of watch the guy that I like and try to talk to him and flirt with him. And I started to get to know him. And then I started making new friends who were accepting and who really appreciated who I was, but also who were very immature. I had no idea that I was running away from home. And so I would like go to the payphone and call this relay number to call my parents. And at first I used to ask if I could stay at my friend's house, even though I was like running away and breaking the rules. I would still try to ask and, you know, kind of check in to let them know where I was. But because I kept on getting in trouble, I just was like, well, I'm just not going to call them anymore and I'm going to stay out. And then I would sneak in through my window and I would sneak in through the back door. And so it was just this really bad snowball of me getting into more and more trouble. The more I ran away, the more I got grounded. And, you know, that those two years just kept on coming back. You know, I could get two weeks off and then another two two weeks would come. And, you know, I really don't think that they knew how to discipline me outside of just grounding me and making me, you know, taking the things away from me that I loved. And they had done it so strongly that I just started not to care. And so I started to resent them in a way. And so I figured that I could just handle things on my own. So I started running away, which only got myself into a lot more trouble. And so when I I was running away. My mom really didn't have anything to say about it. She just kind of, it was almost as if she just didn't care. And so the only person that was really in my face about it was my dad. And so because my dad was such the, the rule, the rule enforcer, the person that gave me the discipline, the person that would follow up and, you know, made the calendar, I started to really, you know, despise him. Although a lot of it was really just my mom telling my dad what to do and then my dad would just kind of go with it. And so I just, I started to, you know, 
I started to resent my father and I still I still didn't understand my mother and I was still trying to figure out what was going on with her. But then I started to resent her too. Um, because in between all of the stuff that was going on, she was still blaming me for stealing money, blaming me for stealing her pills and all kinds of stuff. And everything just was just out of control. And I just really didn't have any clue on what was going on or, or what was going on with me. And, and so it was really hard. Um, my life really changed. I would say in the sixth and seventh and eighth grade, everything for me changed. That is when I lost everything, my relationship with my mom and I stopped going to school. I lost my education. I missed out on my friends and I started hanging out with people that were way different from people in middle school. They're all high schoolers and some of them were even older than high school. Um, they were graduated and I don't know how they were able to put up with me because I was very immature and I clearly didn't have any kind of educational um, value to bring to the table or any way to have a conversation with them that was on their level. I just probably was the annoying kid that was just kind of following them around and trying to, you know, find some kind of friendship and some value that would bring forth some love back to me. And so I'm going to leave it right here and I'm going to um I'm going to close with saying that um it's such a great opportunity to share my story and to share some really hard things to talk about especially um the vulnerability and the ways I felt about myself. I think the hardest part is not necessarily my mental illness but the ways it's hard to say out loud how you feel about yourself and it's hard to say that those things still carry on in your life. And so um, before I close, I do want to share that if anybody's listening to this and they can, um, they're familiar with some of my stories or have mental illness themselves. The one thing I want to encourage is I don't think that there's anything in life that you could have books, you can have therapy, you can have the best friends that will necessarily take that trauma and that pain away or some of the ways that we think that gets us back into those same habits of anxiety and worry and panic and depression. I think it's one of those things where you need to just accept it for what it is and work through it when it comes around and then not beat yourself up when you still have those same struggles and realize that you are an incredible person and that you've done your job and you've done your work and you're working hard every day to go past it. And so if it's something that's still in your life, it doesn't make you any less. It just It's just a part of your story. So, all right, you guys, have a wonderful rest of your day. If you're listening to this in your car ride, I uh, look forward to the next podcast. Bye-bye.